worship team this morning. Um, so if you kind of look around, there aren't a ton of uh, old faces. The reason is that we have uh, most of our people this week have gone out to retreat. We're probably going to be a packed full house next week again. Uh, so again, we hope to see you again next week, but this is a, a little bit more empty than we're used to. But that's great, because we get to see lots of new faces. We're excited to get to meet you and greet you. So please, at the end of the service, please um, meet and greet us, get to know us, and share a little bit about yourselves with us. So our passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And often in my preaching, I like to start off with a question. So here's my question for you to think about this morning as we go through this word. Do you think the way you live your life is faithful to who you are? Let me ask this question again. Do you think the way you live your life is faithful to who you are? Now, this question of who you are, this question of identity, I think is a hot topic today. I was wondering if we could turn down the, the reverb or the, the echo a little bit. Um, I think that we can all understand why it's such an important term, because I think the idea of identity changes everything about us. Identity affects the way we see ourselves. It affects the way we see those around us. It defines our cultural background. And probably more than anything, identity tells us how we are to act. Now today, in our own culture, I think this idea of identity is both as wide as it is complex. And people have made all sorts of things their identity. People make their identity from where they can't come from. They make their identity about who they're attracted to. They make their identity about what their politics they support. And maybe even this morning for many of us, maybe we identify with bands that we like or sports teams that we follow. I probably wouldn't be surprised this morning if there are probably some Raptors fans or Leaf fans. Maybe not so much because they're not so good this year. Maybe you consider yourself tied to your music. Maybe you're a Swifty. Maybe you're a Blinks fan. But if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that these are only things that you like. And I hope that this is actually not who you see yourself as. Because for us as Christians, we actually have a clarity of identity. We know exactly who we are because we're told often over and over through scripture that our identity is that we are Christians, that we are God's people, children of God, that we are people who are in Christ. And that should change everything about us, right? Because we talked about this identity changes everything. If we are in Christ, it should change the way that we see ourselves. It should change the way that you see other people. It should see the way of your own cultural background. And something we'll be talking about this morning is it should, it should change the way about how you see how you should live in this world today. And so just to reiterate the question, maybe in different words, how deep is this identity to you, and does it affect every aspect of your life and behavior? Now, as you listen to this passage this morning, I hope the conclusion or the answer you come to is the big idea that we have in this passage this morning, that you were made to be like Christ. So now, this is how we should all now live, and we should live by this motto, out with the old self and in with the new. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I think it's one of my favorite books because the majority of the discussion about this book is about what does it mean for Christians to be in Christ. It's a, it's a book that I love, not just because it's in Christ, because you can soak in this book for so long as a Christian and not still not fathom everything that's in this book. 
It will drive your passion and your love. It will make you love the Lord deeper because it's all about this idea of being a Christian, what we enjoy as being in Christ. Now, this book actually tells us both ideas, right? So it starts with this idea early in the book about what does it mean, mean to not be in Christ and then about what it means to be in Christ. So starting with this idea of not being in Christ, it talks about this idea that we as mankind were originally made to worship and to praise God and we were made to represent him in this world. However, starting with our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of us, at one point or another, abandoned and separated ourselves, alienating ourselves from God. We abandoned the worship that we were called to. We abandoned the praise that we were supposed to have. We abandoned living in God's ways from the beginning. It's so bad that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says that instead of walking in God's ways, we instead walked to the beat of this world. A world that communicated to people to enjoy their fleshly passions and desires, to live a life of idols, whether other gods, or to live to yourself. And this, this idols, these idols, these passions, takes the place of God in our lives, takes the place of how we should live in this world. And this life, this life is devoid of God. This life lives in opposition to God. Paul, who is the author of this letter, tells us that this type of living is called sin or rebellion against God. And we rebel, we are rebels who love our rebellion in this earthly kingdom. And the part that is most worrying is that, uh, the, that Paul tells us that if this is the life that we live, what comes next, what we deserve, is wrath and judgment from God. Now, this is not in Christ, but this isn't where... Paul's letter ends. Paul tells us now that what, it's, what the joys of actually being in Christ, and this idea of being in Christ is actually a loaded term. I think to begin, this idea of being in Christ starts with this idea that it speaks of someone who trusts in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Now, I hope if, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time that you've learned that this salvation is the good news of our faith this morning. It is the gospel. It's what we believe that our sins have created, not just an evil, but also it creates separation for, between God and us. And our sins are so bad that it stokes God's judgment, that he must judge people. He must judge them with his wrath at the end of time. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus, who has come down from heaven, pays for our sins by dying on the cross on our behalf so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be reconciled to this God. And he does this as we trust in Jesus Christ personally to save us from our sin. Like I said, this is our good news. This is our gospel. Now, what's wonderful about this book is that that's not where the book ends. Paul could have just wrote this book and said, okay, this is your salvation. This is what it means to be in Christ. But Paul paints this beautiful picture of more than just the, the knowledge of what it means for us to be saved. He paints the picture of now, what does it actually look like? All the joys and mercies and blessings that we receive. The next thing that we learn is that we learn that one of the things about being in Christ is that we are now in union, fellowship, communion with Jesus. And that these people who are in Christ, who have fellowship with Christ, also enjoy all these blessings and mercies. Now, these blessings and mercies largely aren't physical, so it's probably not going to get rich. Let's be honest, how many of us here are rich for being in Christ? It's not like you're going to have perfect health, 
who here had COVID during that time, if you're a Christian, so probably not perfect health as well. A lot of the blessings which we receive are actually tied to our union with God or tied to our salvation. And as for others who see this salvation as something that's not worthy, it has no benefit to their lives because it's not physical in nature, for us as Christians, these are priceless treasures. These are blessings and mercies and riches that are, that are connected, this idea of us being chosen and adopted into God's family, redeemed and forgiven for our sins. It means knowing God's plan for salvation. It means God no longer is separated from us. Separation. For the natural man, this idea of being separated from God has no bearing on their life. But for us as Christians, it's, it's everything for us. For us, the separation from God is almost like if we were this planet that is completely separated from, from the sun. Like this planet that's completely cold off in the distant galaxy that has no feeling or emotion that is dead because it is, it's dried out, it's cold. And now Christ, our son, has come in which we can enjoy the blessings of being warm, to having life, to having feeling once again. This is why it's our priceless treasure. Moreover, we are told that we now have access to the Father. Prayer is now effective because he is our heavenly Father. He is our familial Father. He has also given us the Holy Spirit, which guides us and seals us until we take full possession of Christ, who is our final inheritance. And one last thing this morning about being in Christ is that it's changed who we are. You're no longer the person you were before. If you're in Christ this morning, you are someone who's completely different, born again, born anew, regenerated, transformed. Your identity has changed. You're no longer people who are alienated from God, but rather he has made you his people, his new creation, and together this one new person. Now this morning, I hope that if that you see yourself as a Christian and that you see your identity as one who is in Christ. But as I said before, if we said that we have an identity, this identity means something about how we should live. And Paul tells us how this identity now affects how we live in chapter verses 4, verse 1, where Paul tells us that we have such a great salvation. Now for you and for me, we are to live lives worthy of this gospel. And that's really what this section in verses 17 to 24 is about. What does lives worthy of the gospel look like, mean? What are we supposed to do? Now, Paul begins the section with this idea of no longer walking as Gentiles do. Now, firstly, I want to just point out here that Paul says he testifies in the Lord. And I think what he should draw your mind to is that what he's about to say here is very important for us. He's basically saying for, to you and to me, this is what God wants you to know. Paul is not saying these things from his own authority. He's not saying these things from his own human mind. But these are divine things he is now spelling out to us as people of what we should be doing. And that is to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, a Gentile in the Bible is somebody who's non-Jewish. And clearly, what Paul is saying here is not that non-Jewish people cannot be Christians. Otherwise, you and I would be out of luck. Right? We were born into Chinese households. We were not born into any kind of Jewish households. We have no connection to uh, being Jewish, probably in any way, except if you've married a Jewish per person. So clearly, he's not talking about people who are non-Jewish. Because all throughout history, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the church, even as chapters 2 and 3, we're told that Gentiles can and must respond to this gospel. 
No, what he's talking about here is that we should no longer walk as Gentiles do. And specifically, no longer walk as you once did in this world when you didn't know God. Now, Paul gives a much clearer definition of what walking as Gentiles do in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, where he talks about this idea that Gentiles walk in such a way where it shows that they are separated or alienated from God. They're separated from God's people and his commands, and they are people who are without hope in the world because they are without hope of God in their lives. It's quite harsh. And you would think that what we would want then is to live for God. And as Christians, that's exactly what we want. We want to honor God with all of our being, to being lockstep with him as we walk in this world, to see him as the hope in every situation. Yet I would guess that for many of us, that is tempting to walk as Gentiles do. In fact, I think that's why Paul writes this section here, because he knows that it's tempting for us to live like we once did, to follow the course of this world and walk like others do. Now, maybe many of you guys here have been born in the church. Many of you maybe have grown up. But I suspect that many other of you have maybe come out of a non-Christian background and have become Christians. And I think, but I think no matter which side you come from, we're probably going to meet people in our lives who will make living in this world vastly attractive and will make us want to return to that old life. It's kind of like TikTok or Instagram where people put on these easy smiles, they put on these really well-manicured lives, and they make you go, I want to live like that. I want to be like this person. I want what this person has. Now, maybe you're a student this morning, maybe you're working full-time. Whatever your situation may be, you and I will be confronted with the temptation daily to either choose to live like the world but to live for Christ. I think we all have stories in our lives already of people who we have seen, who have already, who've picked a side already, who've picked the side of living like the world, that they've chosen that pursuit of their desire is more important than the pursuit of your faith. And so clearly it has an impact. It has a way in which it can affect us. It has a way in which you and I could easily be sucked in. But one thing we should do as we look at how others live in this world today is we need to see these things from God's perspective. We need to see the danger of this worldliness and pay especially close attention to how it might affect our relationship with God. And this issue that he talks about is this issue of how the world thinks through it. So so Paul says here that we should not live like the Gentiles do because, it's in, the, because it's in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance is in them due to the hardness of heart. The issue that Paul sees here is that the, 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 non, the mind that does not have God in it starts off with this idea of futility. Now, futility has this idea of like emptiness or purposelessness, and it comes from this idea of of people who do not have God as the foundation of their being and their thinking. And this completely changes the way we think about things, right? 
if there's no reason or objective reason about why we do things, that the things that we do don't have real value or purpose, it makes all of our lives meaningless. And no matter what we accomplish, even though we might have these great, wonderful, and lofty thoughts, it actually is empty. It actually has no purpose. And certainly that you can enjoy these things in the temporal moment. But if it's sinful, there is a heavy eternal cost to these things. And ultimately, if they're purposeless, they actually will leave you empty in the end. Isn't this the, the plight of our world today? That there's a vacuum of purpose in the lives of people? And that people are so desperate to fill this aspect of their life that they're willing to fill it with every wind and wave of popular belief. That people are so desperate in their life that they're, they're willing to pursue every earthly thing as their everything. Now maybe in, in your generation, your parents' generation, in the old way in which this looked like, people pursued things like, like wealth. They pursued having this influential name. They, put, they wanted possessions and relationships. Going back to TikTok and Instagram, aren't these the most popular people that people like to see? People have, seem to have all the money, all of the men or women who seem to have this, this great, wonderful name. So still today, it is such, a, such a, a powerful impulse for us to chase after. But I think that for, for many other people, they've come to realize that these pursuits are actually not satisfying to them. And so now they seek these things that seem to have bigger impact in our world today. Worldly justice and fairness social and political change. Now, the problem is that these things are not bad in themselves. The issue is that they're not meant to be our only and final purpose. And they actually have a huge effect on us as we pursue these things in our lives. First, if we see these things as our identity, our markers for why we exist in this world today, number one is that it's not going to change a lack of emptiness or purposelessness in this world it will still leave us in that way. And secondly, what I found is that as we pursue these other things, we often hurt other people, whether ourselves or other people around us, in the process of pursuing these higher pursuits. And on this feeling of emptiness, I think this is why so many people during the lockdown of COVID found it so unbearable that there was this huge spike of mental illness because maybe for the first time in their lives, they had no distractions and they had to come to the question about, is this life, is this all that life is? Is this what all life is about? Is this my singular purpose in life? Just sit here and, and basically either to work myself to death or to play these games to death and that's it. Is that why I exist? To me, maybe this is not the only reason why we had all these issues during the COVID lockdown, but certainly I think that a lot of people are struggling with this question as I've asked other people about this. Now, before you say that, okay, it's easy for you to say, you're on this high and mighty pulpit, easy for you to judge these things, let me just tell you, this pulpit is all, not all that mighty. But number two is that as I talk about these things, these are things that are from my own personal experience. I came to Christ in this exact same way because of these exact same questions. The person that Paul is describing is me. This person who basically had no interest in God whatsoever, was ignorant and was hardened of heart against him. And as I finally got to the question about, is this life all it's about? All I found at the end of this rainbow was a pot full of mud because all it left me was that life is empty and purposeless because there's no reason for, for me to be alive. 
this might be you this morning as well. And if it's you this morning, please come talk to one of us at the end of this because these are questions that we actually have to deal with and it's part of the reason that we are separated from God. Now, Paul does not just see the issue that we have in this world as a problem of futility or purposelessness. He sees another issue is that we have a darkened thinking. And this process of darkened thinking is because, firstly, we, we are alienated from God. The entire reasoning and per- the way we start off with our thinking is that we have this purpose or emptiness, and then we make decisions based on what we don't want, what we don't have. And this actually creates us more and more out of sync with God all the time. This darkened reasoning is out of ignorance, and the more that we live in this world, the more we see separation from him. Now, this is the first meaning of being darkened in their understanding. The second one is a little bit more sinister. In the Bible, this idea of darkened understanding has to do with spiritual darkness. And that is people's natural disposition to God either partly because of uh, the influence of Satan or sin in their life and partly due to their own nature, they have put God off. They've hardened their hearts against him. And they've lived lives that they might seem pleasurable but actually lead to folly. Now, we just talked about thinking, but thinking also leads to action. And if our thinking is futile, if it's darkened, so we'll find our actions will be as well. As it says in verse 19, they have become callous and they become themselves up, uh, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to every practice of evil, every, sorry, every practice of impurity. Now, I think that what the Bible's not saying here is that as you kind of go through this list, well, I don't experience this kind of greed. I don't have this kind of sensuality. But I think if you look at the, the entire block of people, of humanity, who deals with sin in this way, this is what we will see, and I think this is actually what we see. And, and I think it makes sense, right? Because I think that imagine if you are one degree off, and on, on, on one degree off from something, you just keep pursuing that one degree off, you'll continue to go further and further away from what actually is your goal, the thing that you should be doing. So it's with us, that as our minds are separated from God, so our hearts and our actions will be as well. And if God is the definition of how we should live, the good life, what should be good, then as we kind of deviate further and further away from him, so we'll move more and more into impurity. Now, does this matter? I think philosophers for the longest time have seen that our lives are not just products of living a happy life, but also living a life that is good as well. And that you kind of need all these things together. But my problem is this, that if we live in a world that where God is not the center, are, are not all of our actions just gray? Are they not purposeless? Could you ever actually say that you've lived a good life apart from having a God who actually defines what good is? So can you actually ever have a truly fulfilling life if you just feel kind of good all the time, but never feel like you're actually doing or living the way that you should? This is why this is so important for us, because for us as Christians, all of it is grounded upon Christ. Now, Paul here asks and hopes that this is the way that you learn Christ. Not that you learn Christ to live in this world, but you learn Christ to live apart from it, as he says in verses 20 to 21, but that it is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as is the truth in Jesus. 
our hope this morning at Chinese Gospel Church is that this is the way that you as Christians had learned about Jesus Christ, that you were taught in him, and that you will continue to learn about him throughout your life. We hope that you've learned about not just the, the work of Jesus Christ, but the person of Christ. This person who is the part of the triune God, the Son, the God who takes on human flesh to live the perfect life that demonstrates his holiness and righteousness and also lives the perfect life so that for you and for me. This Jesus Christ who substitutes himself on the cross on our behalf where we should deserve to be on the cross and to die for our sin, he comes to die for ours. This God who raises from the dead, who is the first among us to raise, to remind us that this is the life that we are looking forward to enjoying at one point in time in the future. And that we can have all of this by trusting in Jesus' work for us alone. That he saves us from our sins and unites us to God himself. And so when God sees you or when he sees me, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our lack of righteousness. He sees Christ. He sees Christ as who has paid for these sins. And he sees Christ's righteousness, who, who now is our righteousness as God's people. This is the way in which we hope that you have learned Christ in your own life. Now, one thing that has really disturbed me personally over the last couple of years is there has been a movement within the church to knowing uh, where we should be knowing more and more about God in the Bible, we're actually moving away and moving, trying to learn less and less about him. Where the Christian faith is becoming less concrete in its beliefs and more mystical in its thinking. I, I want to argue that this is actually something that is crushing. I want you to imagine if you, had a, if you were married to a man or a woman and you basically told them, hey, I want to know less about you. If I know less about you, I can love you more because then I could put you on a pedestal. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about you. you know, I could, it's just these feelings. You know, that's good enough. But that's not the way we we're called to love the Lord. That's not the way we're called to love, um, his, uh, God, to love him directly. We did love him in deep and wonderful ways. I, I would argue that our goal as Christians is not just to do the work, but to learn more and more about him. And by doing so, we grow in our praise and our worship. It helps us to make sense of the world around us. It helps us to make sense of these complex li lives that have all these difficulties and to understand them in the way that Christ would understand them. And lastly, to drink, uh, secondly, to drink deeply upon the wonder and power and majesty of God himself. And then lastly, the more we know about him, the more we know how he wants us to live. We know that the early church is really interested in this as well. For us who are in the modern world, that we're moving further and further away of learning more concrete things about God, the early church was fixed on making disciples of God's people by teaching them about God and what it meant to be a Christian. And we know because we have records. We know that the early church had manuals for teaching Christians. We know that they had a process for teaching Christians, and it wasn't weeks that they had this process for baptism. It was a, it was a, it was a long years that they would take in their pro process of, turn, of going from someone from baptism into someone who was serving in the church. For us here at the Chinese Gospel, we do it pretty well for most churches. We take about six weeks. 
The early church spent years learning about God, learning about theology, who God is, what is he doing, what is the salvation, learning about apologetics, how to defend their faith, and learning about how to live. Now this idea of learning how to live is the thing that we should have learned the most about Christ and the thing that Paul points our attention to in verses 22 to 24. Verses 22 to 24, to put off the old self which belongs to you to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to renew in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created at the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now the instruction that we're given here is how to live. And it takes on the image of taking on and putting on clothes. Hopefully, something all of us have learned at this point of time of how to put on and take off clothes. Now, starting off this idea of taking off clothes, it wants us to take off this old self. Now, this old self that we're talking about is this Gentile nature, this Gentile person who we once lived as. It is made after the image of this world, and it is corrupted, and it is, has followed the deceit of this world. And that makes sense because, like I said, our world has no interest in following after God. It is alienated from God. Its desires are opposed to what God is doing. And if you believe it or not, Ephesians chapter 2 tells there is a power that is working in this world that is pushing against God and Satan himself. And so we need to put off this whole self. Now how we do that is we need to have a hard look at who we are. We need to take a look at our old lives and see what has persisted in our life. And this idea of taking off the old self, clearly it's active, right? Because you actually have to do something. You have to put off this old self. And so are you actively looking at your life and seeing the sinfulness that is in it, in it and weeding it out? Because sin is kind of like weeds. I don't know any of you guys here who are in charge of your families taking, like you are in charge for your family taking care of kind of like the, the yard of your family, right? So for, for many of us, when we were young, your parents would put you up because they're cheap labor, and they'd throw you out into the yard so that you could mow the grass and de-weed your lawn. And it's important, right? Because if we don't do those things, what happens is as more weeds grow up, all you're going to see are weeds. It's going to kill everything else. It's going to harm the growth of all the flowers that you want to grow, all the grass that you've planted, all the things that you've put there are going to die. In fact, my daughter, so we, we had a, so my daughter's three years old, her name is Constance. She learned this not too long ago. So we thought it was a great idea to grow mint in our yard. Well, surprisingly, and if you don't know, mint is actually an invasive species. Once mint grows, it eats everything up, it chokes everything else out. And so all she had was a pot full of mint, even though she had put all these flowers down. And that's exactly what sin does to you and to me. It will choke out this new life that you have. It will harm your growth. It will damage your faith in the Lord. And so our business should be one of rooting out, much like when you were young, rooting out the weed of sin in our lives, the sin that does not please God. Now regarding this new self, now this new self has a lot of different words that we use in the Bible called being born again, regenerated, and it happens in the moment that we come to Christ where something happens to us, where we undergo a transformation, where the passions that we once had that no, had no interest in God, had no impulse for God in our life, that didn't want to serve him or love him or care anything about him, now completely change. 
that now we care about the things of God. We care about spiritual life. We care about knowing him in a deeper way. This is the new self that came and has happened to you. And, it, and it's something that happens, but will continually change the way you think, change your mind, and will continue to change who you are. And it's this spirit in your mind that is renewed day by day, the one in which continues to change you to be more like Christ in who you are today. And this spirit or this process of becoming more like Christ we call progressive sanctification. Because we are growing to be more virtuous in our living, to be more like him. I think these things speak not just to how we live, but in every part of who you are. It's not just what you're doing, but how you, how you see yourself in the world, how you think about or motivated what your attitudes are. These are things about what has actually changed. And here, we're actually not talking about this process of becoming more like Christ and being perfect like him. But the question is, are we sincerely becoming more like him? Now this comes to the, the question that, coming back to the question that we had this morning, do you think the way you live your life is faithful to who you are? If this is the first time you're at this church, um, just FYI, this is the way I preach. I take a question from my introduction and put it right to the end just because it makes my life easier, it shortens my sermon, does all those good things. But more than all those things, I think it helps us to focus on what exactly is the main idea that we have today. And the main idea of this question is, what is actually your identity this morning? For those of you who said that you've been in Christ, you've said you're a Christian for this long, when you look at your life, does it line up with who you say that you actually are? If you've been taught in Christ, taught about his goodness and holiness and righteousness, is that who you're looking like to be? I'm going to pivot here a little bit as well. If this is not just your interest, let me pivot a different way. In our world today, I think there's a lot of discussion about human growth, human flourishing, human development. And I would argue that as we become more and more like Christ, as we go through the process of progressive sanctification, that we are growing into the person that we should be. That this is true human growth. This is true human flourishing. This is true human development. And I've been teasing this idea out all through the scripture that, remember when we talked about Genesis chapter 1, that Adam and Eve were actually made in God's image from the beginning. The moment that we are now partaking in the image of Christ, we are now living in that image now. Meaning that as much of the world as Adam and Eve either failed, abandoned, or something about that image is broken, that image is now restored and reclaimed to us as we are in Christ. That we are living as we should. We are living as God has created human beings to live. We are living in the way that made them flourish, made them develop, made them as their purpose was. And so as we pursue being like Christ, we are pursuing the purpose of our destiny, of our lives, of what we were created to do. And what we were created to do was to represent God in the world in his righteousness and holiness. And so if, you're not, so if you're not just interested in salvation and sanctification, this is actually what it means for us to truly grow as human beings. 
And so I conclude again with this. Given all that we've heard and all that we have heard, uh, learned this morning, is this how others will describe you this year as you enter the workplace, as you enter new schools or enter your programs again, as your families and friends see you, that they would say that you are a light to the nations that illuminates to others about the God you worship and serve? Or will you be a dark spot or just a spot that is unclear or not seen in the lives of other people around you? Because that's not who we should be, who we were made to be, who we are, what we should be like. That you and I, whether you're Christian or not Christian this morning, we were all called to bear the image of God, to be like Christ, because this is who we were all meant to be. And to do this, we need to put off the old self and put on Christ. Now this morning, you've heard this question about being in Christ. And if you have questions about what this means, I will stand here at the front of this little table here, uh, and I'll take questions and we'll talk. But really, the question we need to ponder is, are we truly in Christ? And are we truly walking in his likeness in our day-to-day life? This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask Chris to give up this morning and give us a response song. And